somehow you slide we would never get around to to mentioning wars, depression, big business government, bigotry. Your world is dying, Dad, and it's burying itself in the dry rot of imperialism and colonialism. When the moral fiber of the United States and the economy collapses under the pressure of competitive coexistence, it will be your responsibility, comrades, to purge the minds of the reactionary Americans. The anarchist seeks only ruin and destruction, and he rides a tidal wave of terror. I guess we're anarchists. You know, if the cops come, the cops come. You're listening to Against the Machine. Hey, everybody. My name is Amir, and I am the creator of Pages Against the Machine. I want to thank you for checking out our very first podcast. So I figured I would give a little bit of my backstory for those of you that don't know me, since you're going to be listening to me talk a lot. So here goes. As I had said, my name is Amir. I am based in Southern California, but I grew up back east. I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, in Appalachia, in a post-steel town. I grew up really poor. I actually had a parent incarcerated the majority of my life, Um, but now I live out west. I am of Iranian Kurdish descent. I still have a lot of family that lives over in Kermanshah in Iran. Um, And I was raised super political. I had a very political grandfather who raised me, who actually had been the president of his labor union. It was the type of household in which we watched the news all the time. We were always talking about what was going on. And he despised Republicans and they weren't really welcome in our house. Okay, I'm exaggerating a little bit there, but where most kids grew up watching cartoons and Nickelodeon and all that, I grew up watching the news and talking about the news with my grandfather, even as a little kid. When I got to high school, I discovered punk rock. I got really into that. I was very lucky because there was a huge punk scene in the town where I grew up. Shout out Johnstown, Pennsylvania at that time. So that exposed me to radical politics and the whole DIY ethic and everything of which I embraced. I ended up going to film school in Pittsburgh. Uh, It was there that I ended up getting connected with an environmental organization of which I ended up working for for the majority of the time I was there. Uh, That was the first time that I got truly involved in politics and organizing and campaigning. To this day, the wildest protests that I've ever been to were actually my first big protest, which was the G20 protests back in Pittsburgh in 2009. Uh, Shit got so crazy um i ended up hiding in dumpsters at point it was it's it's a whole story maybe i'll do a podcast on that it was the first time that the lrads and things were used on people uh, a lot of people don't know about it but it was a very pivotal point in uh, you know, militarization of police and using force on on protesters so anyway i graduated film school i was super hippied out at this point in time and i headed out west with just a bicycle and a backpack i ended up finding some people to stay with uh they were living Living in what was an old music studio at one point in time. It definitely wasn't a house, but yeah, it was a place for me to stay. Uh, so I ended up getting a job with an environmental organization so I can make a bunch of friends. Made the friends, fell into the community. I ended up getting old 97 Dodge Caravan, started living in that and just started traveling. And that was awesome. You know, that was a dream come true. Just did the nomad thing for a long time, just driving all over the, you know, just driving all over the West, camping, chilling, hanging out, going to rainbow gatherings, that type of thing, just being, you know, super hippied out. It was awesome. And it was fun until it wasn't. On Instagram, you see this really fictitious idea of van life. You see these kids with like fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 custom vans that are nicer than a lot of people's apartments. My van was a 97 Dodge Caravan and it was beat. It would break down all the time. 
I had AAA specifically, so I could usually get from point A to point B. I don't even know how many times I got away with getting them to tow me. My battery of my my van, I would have to disconnect every time I got out because my lights would stay on. You know, I was really on the fringe van living. Van living is great when you're on the road and you're traveling and you got places to go and people to be with. But when it's just you just trying to get by in the city, it's not so fun. So keep that in mind. I encourage everybody to just be nomadic and live in vans. However, if you can get a nicer van, get a nicer van, get one that's reliable. Anyway, I ended up getting involved in the Occupy movement in L.A., eventually then Oakland. In L.A., I ended up throwing a hammock high up in one of the trees in front of City Hall for a while. So if you saw that hammock and you were there, that was me. Fast forward a few years after a bunch of couch surfing and then hopping from one communal house to the next, I was able to break into the music industry. As a professional roadie doing video systems and directing concerts for bands, it completely changed my life. I went from living, like I said, in a 97 Dodge Caravan that was worth maybe 600 bucks to living in a quarter million dollar tour bus and flying all over the world and getting to all this amazing stuff. It, you know, I, the first time I was in Golden Gate Park, I had been sleeping in it. And then when I had returned to Golden Gate Park again, I was standing on main stage in, in front of, you know, tens of thousands of people during a music festival. So it just, it just totally changed my life. It's been a crazy ride. Yeah, I've lived in two worlds. I've lived in the poor traveler kid, rainbow kid world, and I've also lived in you know the concert industry, music industry, rock and roll roadie world as well. About a year ago, I got crushed in a serious accident during a loadout at a show in Boston. Loadout is when we load the show out, throw on the trucks, get ready to go to the next city. Anyway, I spent a month in the hospital there, and I've spent the past year since then recovering. During that time, I realized how nice it was to be able to slow down because before it was just continually working, being on tour, being on the road, taking one gig after the next. The lifestyle was a grind, man. Being on tour is a straight up grind. So it was nice being able to slow down and start focusing on my own creative endeavors and projects, you know, get back into political stuff, get back into my filmmaking and everything that you know, inspires me and drives me because it's hard to do that when you're always you know on the go. So Pages Against the Machine just came out of me needing uh, a way to start talking about politics again and an outlet for that. The plan all along was to build out Pages Against the Machine as a platform in a way that would allow me to further discuss leftist politics, philosophy, history, news, and big ideas. So I am incredibly grateful for your participation thus far, for every like, every comment, every repost, every blog, every direct message, and particularly for listening to this podcast. Seriously, I am so grateful for your participation in this community that we're building. So that's enough about me. We're going to get back and focus on the podcast. So the very first podcast that I had planned for this series was taking quite a long time to create, given that it was the first one. During that time, I really wanted to get something out faster uh, to all of you, and that happened to coincide perfectly with the stupid fucking speech that Donald Trump gave at Mount Rushmore the other day uh, for the 4th of July. And so I decided that I would do a, the first podcast as a two-part series analyzing that speech that he had given there. So for those of you that don't know, on July 3rd, 2020, President Donald Trump decided to have essentially what was a political rally at the base of Mount Rushmore. 
Now, before we can proceed any further, it's really important that I just touch base on the history of Mount Rushmore um, because there's a lot that we should know about it. Uh, the monument, or whatever you want to call it, was created on occupied Lakota Sioux land in the Black Hills of South Dakota. So the Treaty of Fort Laramie in 1868 granted the Black Hills to the Lakota people in perpetuity. However, as always is the case, the government continually broke its word, particularly when gold was discovered on that land. Eventually, the United States showed back up and pushed the Sioux off of the land of the Black Hills during the Great Sioux War of 1876. So the mountain we refer to now as Mount Rushmore, its true name is actually the Six Grandfathers, and it is of spiritual significance to the Lakota Sioux. I think the original name should be reclaimed and we start referring to Rushmore as the Six Grandfathers. However, given that there's the face of four non-American Indian white presidents plastered on that sacred mountain, we're going to refer in this podcast to the spectacle that it has become, which is Mount Rushmore. So just a heads up on that. So we're going to take a moment to just dive into the backstory behind Mount Rushmore, who made it, why it exists, that type of thing. The story of Mount Rushmore begins in 1924. The state of South Dakota is looking to increase tourism. The state historian named Don Robinson conceived of this idea. So he approached sculptor Gutzon Borglum to do some sort of carving into the granite in the Black Hills. Originally, Borglum is going to carve into some granite spires that look like pillars that is referred to as the needles, but those needles were too eroded and weak, and so he realized that that wasn't going to work. It wasn't a good idea. They settled on carving on the giant edifice of the six grandfathers. The next step was to try to figure out what exactly that they were going to carve onto it. The historian Don Robinson was really into the idea of carving the faces of famous figures from the West such as Lewis and Clark, as well as the faces of famous American Indians, such as the guide Sacagawea, Lakota Chief Red Cloud, and the Oglala Chief Crazy Horse. But Borglum, being a man of his time, a white man of his time, felt that that would have very limited appeal and that they should keep it white. Eventually, it was decided they'd carve the faces of four presidents on it. The federal government threw in some money at one point. The whole thing was completed in 1939. That's just a very quick overview. Just keep in mind, it was never designed to be the sacred monument or anything other than a tourist trap for South Dakota. So back to the present. It's an election year. It's 2020. Trump's doing everything he can to get reelected. He dials up this stupid uber patriotism he tries to project in hopes that it will rally his base and get people motivated and fired up about Trumpism further. Say what you will about Trump, at least he's consistent. You can almost always count on him to take the completely wrong side of every argument or every stance. For those of you that don't live in the United States or know, right now the country seems as if it's going to go through a reckoning on race and racial justice for the first time since possibly the civil rights. It appears that large parts of white America are finally starting to wake up and realize that everything is not good in this country, particularly for black people, that there are huge systemic and institutionalized racist attitudes in this country. It took finally the murder of George Floyd by a police officer all eight minutes of that video clip to start to ignite the dormancy of white America into action. So... Just to digress really fast, there was a civil war in the United States, for those of you who don't live here, in the 1860s that was fought over the right to have slaves and slavery. It's a shameful past. However, large parts of the South 
today still have statues from that Confederate past, that pro-slavery past. And a lot of those statues ended up going up during the civil rights era as a fuck you to the black people that lived in the South. Keep in mind that the biggest population of black people in this country resides in what's considered the Southern states. So anyway, right now in the country, one of the biggest things is the movement to start tearing down and getting rid of these statues that shouldn't even be standing in the first place. Hopefully some of you listening have actually participated in some loading out of statues, some relocation of some Confederate assholes. If so, thank you on behalf of Pages as well as all of the listeners. So anyway, back to Trump. This asshole decides he's going to create the ultimate spectacle, the ultimate display of American fanaticism by holding what essentially is a taxpayer-funded political rally in front of Mount Rushmore on July 4th, the 4th of July. In doing so, he is attempting to create a spectacle in which he equivocates himself as being of the perceived greatness as the four presidents whose faces are plastered on Mount Rushmore. It's just a completely disgusting, ridiculous, stupid example of self-deification and worship, which we would expect nothing less than from Trump. So say what you will about him. It's actually politically genius for firing up his stupid ass base. It comes right out of the Trump playbook. Look, his campaign are the masters of dark politics of realpolitik. It's always about keeping the cameras and the media focused on Trump and what he does next. And truth be told, it's the people behind Trump that are the ones behind the wheel of the bus. Terrible, terrible, terrible people like Stephen Miller. You see their employment of realpolitik in the whole mask situation in regards to COVID-19. Trump was self-destructing on live TV around the time this emerged. And this was around the time of the whole bleach incident. Um, he, you know, his, his poll numbers were down. He was looking like an idiot. He was completely failing. And so around the same time, these protests start popping up around the country. And this, this happening fits totally into that Trump playbook. Among their campaign strategies is, is to create a crisis or conflict, buckle down, and stand strong on the wrong side of the issue. They're all about consolidating power around that issue and conquering and dividing. This, this makes whatever this position seem okay, no matter how terrible it is to the mainstream public. And then when enough people are openly adopting it and standing behind it and on the wrong side of the issue, it truly brings out the worst in people. But it's justified. It's normalized. You, you see this with racism. It makes things that aren't okay seem okay to the average citizen. So not long after the whole anti-quarantine and lockdown uh, movement really escalated, thanks to the media, uh, Trump then did a tactically brilliant maneuver in shifting the narrative about how churches should not be closed. He saw an opportunity to exploit the religiosity of this country for his own campaign. Once again, I despise Donald Trump with a passion. However, he is a master and his people are a master at manipulating the spectacle of the American media to, to get their messages out and to use it for their own political gain. And, and that example, it just shines bright in demonstrating that because once again, it turns the dialogue away from being about should we continue lockdown for the benefit of the country to a conflict about how it's how it's going against the constitution how it's infringing on people's you know the the right of the freedom of religion um 
and so it just shifts the whole narrative into a into a place where it gives Trump uh, a certain power to can you know he gives gives him a position of which he can consolidate power among his base, and, and so this whole dumbass Fourth of July spectacle fits totally into that strategy of of manipulating the media and consolidating the base. The absolute worst part of this entire situation is that there is a raging pandemic in the United States. Over 120,000 people have died, and many more will continue to. There has been little direction or action on behalf of the federal government, and honestly, the president has just been divisive and destructive. Disproportionately affected by this pandemic are American Indian communities. Oftentimes lacking resources and quality health care, many tribal communities have been ravaged by this virus. So, somehow, this irresponsible and vile president decides that it's okay, that it's worth the risk to bring thousands of people from around the country to convene on occupied native lands. This is beyond the pale of terrible. His campaign decided that it was worth the lives of the Sioux peoples to hold his little self-worship rally. They knowingly allowed the virus to come in and multiply in this community. Remember how smallpox was weaponized against the indigenous peoples? This is completely unacceptable. There is a president committing violence time and time again against American citizens for his political gain, and yet nothing happens. Forget impeachment. He needs to be forcibly removed from office and prosecuted under criminal law and spend the rest of his pathetic life in prison. Keep in mind, this asshole exploits the coronavirus tragedy for his political advantage with the whole mask freedom paradigm. The massive crowd that showed up to this spectacle were largely maskless. When the camera cuts to the crowd, you see a sea of white maskless faces and a ton of cowboy hats. He doesn't care about these people. He doesn't care about their well-being whatsoever. Yet, they blindly put themselves and the community they invade at risk. This is just some straight-up cult leader and follower shit. So 7,500 people showed up to this rally. That's 7,500 people he put directly at risk of catching the coronavirus, as well as all of the crew, the vendors, and all of the staff at that show. Believe me, there was a lot. There was a lot of video. There was fucking (laughs) plane shots and everything. One of the things that we can hope for, best case scenario, is that Trump keeps dividing and conquering to the point that he starts getting diminishing returns. That every time he keeps dividing and dividing, he's connecting with people, but that base of people grows smaller and smaller. You know, this guy literally just posted, the president of the United States posted a video in which somebody in a Trump, in a Trump, this is even funny, in a Trump, uh, Trumped out golf cart yells white power i i'm at a loss for words i'm at a loss for words so hopefully he's getting to the point where his his support is continually shrinking and shrinking but also you know it would be getting stronger and stronger among you know those assholes um but we can't count on that whatsoever we have to keep in mind we have we have to expect trump to win so that way we stay mobilized and 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 we fight back um, but now we're going to talk about the rally and what, what exactly he said at the rally. Once again, Trump, his, his whole playbook is, is his entire strength 
let's say, comes from this idea of a culture war. And once again, culture war, it's fucking stupid bullshit created by the media spectacle designed to keep people watching, designed to keep the viewership up, to keep the ad revenue and the commercials and the advertising money all rolling into the network. And and Trump, being a master of media manipulation, sees all of the opportunity in using this idea of a culture war for his own personal gain. So we're going to now start talking about what was actually said at the rally, because this is really important to know and understand right now. Um, I, I am of the opinion that you need to understand what those that you disagree with believe in and why they believe in it, because you need, as, as a leftist, that wants to change the world. You need to understand how to connect with individuals and, and, and change and work to shift and transform them if you want to create a better society. And so I'm really into the idea of understanding the psychology behind Trumpism. Because let's face it, Trump Trump may, may not win election, but Trumpism, those ideas aren't going anywhere. And we need to learn what the antidote is to, to wake people up, to snap them out of that daze, to get that toxicity out of their system. So anyways, back to the rally. I want to talk about just this whole spectacle for, for what, what it is. Um, so if you go on YouTube and, and you look at the clips, um, you, you'll see that, you know, it's complete with some guy dressed up as Abraham Lincoln talking. Um, and then... <laughs> Air Force One with Trump in it flies in front of Mount Rushmore with a bunch of like ACDC music playing in the background. So, I mean, it's it's surreal. It's just absurd. It's just such stupid propaganda. And I mean, I, I work or, or, you know, I worked in live video production for broadcast um, and, and just the amount of work and load and preparation and coordination and, and directing something like this, it's it's unreal. Like the the amount of money that that must have cost. Um, and, and you know the the <laughs> there there are shots um, from planes of Air Force One flying, um, you know, from above it and stuff. And it's you know I it's it's just so dumb. Like it is just the dumbest propaganda. I I honestly think you should go on YouTube and just watch some of it because it's just like a character of of you know this uber patriotism. And and one of the interesting things about America is this just complete total obsession and deification and worship of the military. It's re- it's a really strange paradoxical thing in which Americans care so much allegedly about freedom and this and that, but at the same time are just so into uh, just <laughs> venerating this idea of force and law and authority figures and military. And this is something that is just very deeply embedded in the psychology of the average American based upon the mythos of World War II and, and, and the whole spectacle uh, of what America is and our power. And that's something that I really want to get into this podcast because I'm fascinated by the psychology of political beliefs. Um, and, and there's some of that that I'm going to you know talk about in the next podcast. Um so anyway, Trump has been very, very effective at exploiting, you know, this this deep love and, and ver- um, veneration of, of the military. And so the whole Fourth of July spectacle that he created relies heavily upon that imagery and that iconography, as well as, um, you know, the whole idea of law and order and police and law enforcement. 
um, which is something the Republicans love to play with. You know, even the Democrats in the 90s just got really into this idea of law and order and, you know, tough policing and stuff. So it's just it's just so paradoxical and counter the idea of freedom and all this and that. So America is just a very complex place. Um, so anyway, I watched the entirety of the whole 4th of July Mount Rushmore spectacle. And I'm going to bring to you a bunch of clips from that because I think it is of the utmost importance for those of us on the left to fully understand what it is our adversaries believe, their motivations, the way they look at the world, and things like that. Because it is through that that we will gain power and understanding of how to reach those people and that type of thing. Um, so the first clip we're going to go to is the governor of South Dakota, Christy Nome, speaking. She's the one that kind of give, gave Trump the introduction speech. And so shout out to PBS NewsHour um, for whose broadcast we're using clips from. So here is Christy Nome talking about all of the activism and protests that have been going on during the past few months for justice for George Floyd, as well as Black Lives Matter protests and, you know, getting rid of statues and monuments to terrible people. Um, but it's very reflective of how the conservatives and the Trumpists see reality. And so take a listen to this. Across America these last several weeks, we have been witnessing a very troubling situation unfold. In real time, we are watching an organized, coordinated campaign to remove and eliminate all references to our nation's founding and many other points in our history. Okay, so, so here we have an example of, of how the narrative is being twisted. Once again, the right loves to twist the narrative and the spectacle to serve their interests. You see this with, you know, the Colin Kaepernick situation, uh, the kneeling for... Um, Black Lives Matter essentially was reframed as he's not he's not kneeling to to protest the, the lives of black people. Instead, he's kneeling against the flag because he's unpatriotic. And so they shift the whole conversation away from Black Lives Matter and into this other conversation that they're creating about it being disrespectful to the flag. And they take this idea of kneeling and they make it this this horrible, terrible thing. But the funny thing is, if Kaepernick said he was kneeling for all the fallen soldiers Americans would have lost their shit. You know, he would be seen as this this hero, this patriot, this amazing person who is so noble and just. And the, so essentially, like, you see how they take things. They value military lives, but they don't value black lives. So, like, that that's just what it comes down to. And so what they're doing now is they are doing a similar thing. There's protests against injustice against black people, and there's protests against the killing of George Floyd, and there's protests against this country's fixation and glorification of slave owners um, and people that fought for the Confederacy. So what they're doing is they're twisting this away from, you know, civil rights and what this is truly about and towards this idea of the left wants to erase history. They want to erase our glorious past. You know, rather than looking to the past to help improve our future, some are trying to wipe away the lessons of history. And the truth is, is this is not about erasing the past. This is just about getting rid of the monuments that revere individuals that reflect in our figureheads of some of the worst, most shameful parts of the American history. It's about literally removing those people that fought from the Confederacy from their pedestals. We could replace them with tons of individuals that were on the right side of history. John Brown, Harriet Tubman, all of this and that. But no, that's not what this is about. It's not about that history. It's about their version of history that fits in with this fictitious worldview that conservatism creates. This is being done deliberately 
to discredit America's founding principles. See, this is where things get surreal, because the fact of the matter is the majority of these monuments are to people that were on the side of the Confederacy. Their values had nothing to do with the foundational values that were written in 1776, um, such as all men are created equal. This has nothing to do with that. And here's where you see them skewing the truth. They skew reality to sell this narrative. If anything, it's the opposite. Tearing down those statues of people that decided to fight against the United States is actually totally in alignment with those original constitutional values and everything that, you know, conservatives are so about, such as, you know, all men being created equal. So that America can be remade into a different political image. Absolutely. We need a different image. We need an image for the children that are growing up, the children of color, that this is not a country that values racism, slavery, and those horrible, shameful parts of the Confederate past. That everybody in this country of color feels as if they belong that they have equal rights, that they deserve to be here, that they get to be here, and most importantly, that they belong here. So yes, we do need a new image. We need an image that is inclusive of everyone. And so she continues her speech doing the normal glorification of the colonial armies that beat the British and everything during the Revolutionary War. And then the irony um, just the amazing irony is then she starts talking about, you know, the legacy of George Washington and how he was this humble leader that didn't want to lead. And the whole time she's at a Trump rally and she's giving an introductory speech before the most vain, narcissistic person that may have ever existed is going to come on and speak. You know, following the British defeat, we could have had a king, but instead we had a man who walked away from his position as commander in chief. And then he also walked away from the presidency. Meanwhile, Donald Trump, who thinks he's a king, is sitting there getting ready to take the stage. Just the surrealness of what is being said and who it's being said for. And at this point, you know, the crowd is growing excited. Trump's going to be coming on soon. And so what happens is exactly what you would expect to happen at a Trump rally. <laughs> Well, I'm sure you called it right. They break out into the USA chant, which is just such a strange thing to do. It's totally in alignment what with Germans would have done during Nazi Germany, chanting, you know, Zig Heil and that type of dumb shit. And it totally, you know, if you start researching cult psychology and group psychology, when, when the individual gives themselves over to the whole, there's a certain power in surrendering and submitting and giving yourself over to the whole. And the whole USA chant itself is basically a mantra that is uniting those people in the audience into a collective mindset. And once again, the collective mindset, when human beings are together, that is where we derive power. That is the basis of the power we have at protests. When people come together and they recognize, they become self-aware of the strength that they have when they are working together that is the basis of every revolutionary movement and everything that has ever changed the world. So this whole USA chant thing that they do, it's, it's scary. It's something straight out of Nazi Germany. Um, but, you know, it's, it's the classic. It's the standard of a Trump rally. So now she gets ready to introduce Trump. So take a listen to this. Now I want to introduce someone who understands precisely what it means to brave the dangers of the arena. 
someone who strives valiantly, who knows great enthusiasms, who spends himself in a worthy cause, and who has firmly and repeatedly stated his commitment to place Americans, American liberty, is this American safety, about and the American the of Constitution or before anything else. I am talking, I am talking, of course, about President Donald Trump. And of course, the crowd goes crazy, freaking out, celebrating their, their cult leader is going to take the stage. But one of the things that truly sticks out from that introduction is when the very beginning, when she says, who braves the arena, there is time and time again, the right creates this idea of this fictitious culture war that is going on. And so likening Trump to being a gladiator going into battle, she's creating and supporting that whole artificial paradigm that they have constructed through Fox News and the various channels of which conservatives believe and operate in. And the craziest thing is, is using this metaphor, suggesting that Trump is a gladiator in battle. Who is he in battle with? The media? Well, what is the media? It's American citizens. So this whole narrative that the president of the United States is at war with American citizens is fucking crazy. It's dangerous. Mr. President, welcome to South Dakota. And thank you. Thank you for your efforts to bring this beautiful celebration of American independence, history, and liberty to fruition. By completely disregarding that the United States is in a worldwide pandemic and that we have the most amount of unnecessary casualties from this pandemic in the world and making it possible by completely disregarding the welfare of the citizens and the native peoples that live there in South Dakota. So she gives Trump this grand introduction. He takes the stage and this is the first thing that he says behind the podium. There could be no better place to celebrate America's independence than beneath this magnificent, incredible, majestic mountain monument to the greatest Americans who have ever lived. Oh, really, Donald? No, no greater place. What about some place where there isn't a pandemic? Okay, here's the deal. The reason why it's so great, because it's so great for him. He talks about those four heads looming above him as being the greatest Americans that exist. So what he is doing is he is framing himself as one of those people, one of the equals of those presidents, as one of the greatest Americans to have ever lived. That is why it's such a great place, because it serves his image. It serves the reality he's trying to construct. It puts him in a place that deifies him subliminally in the eyes of his cult of followers and voters. I am here as your president to proclaim before the country and before the world, this monument will never be desecrated. These heroes will never be defaced. Their legacy will never, ever be destroyed. Their achievements will never be forgotten. And Mount Rushmore will stand forever as an eternal tribute to our forefathers and to our freedom 
So he goes right into the culture war. He goes right for that to get his base riled, to get everybody freaking out. He frames this idea of it's us versus them. There are people, forces in this country that want change. They want to change the way things are. You do not want that. You want stuff to remain stable. Therefore, he is championing you. He is fighting to prevent Mount Rushmore from being defaced. Once again, this is a whole flipping, once again, of what I talked about. We were talking about statues getting pulled down. Trump now is creating a spectacle, a counter spectacle in front of Mount Rushmore, where he's using it not only to glorify himself, but to just really anchor down in this fake culture war that he's continually escalating and building and recklessly starting to lose control over. And so the crowd goes wild. They break back out into the USA chain. Now see if you can hear the subtle dog whistle in what Trump goes into next. 1776 represented the culmination of thousands of years of Western civilization. There it is, Western civilization. That's very important for what he's going to start talking about next. And the triumph of not only spirit, but of wisdom, philosophy, and reason. Okay, so right now, Trump is low-key saying that Western civilization has triumphed over all the other civilizations because Western civilization is the sole owner of wisdom, philosophy, and reason. So right there is just a blatant dog whistle to all the racists and the white nationalists that are listening and supporting him. So this is part of the dark genius of Trump's strategy and Trumpism. You know, you've got Stephen Miller behind there giving Trump this language, giving him this framework to talk and deliver in his speeches to reach to reach the shittiest, worst people in this country, the fucking racists and the nationalists. As we meet here tonight, there is a growing danger that threatens every blessing our ancestors fought so hard for. Okay, here's the deal. The United States is a very new country. We didn't come from a civilization. We didn't come all from one specific ethnic background or kingdom or anything like that. So the United States does not have really a mythos. We don't have a clear vision of ancestors. You know, it's all open. It's all fair game. And so what conservatives like to do, and just what America's done in general, is it's had to construct this artificial idea of these, you know, these ancestors that we've had that brought us to this point. You know, the settlers, the colonists, the people that fought in World War II, all of these things are used specifically to create a specific narrative for the American people to believe in, buy into. They bled to secure. Our nation is witnessing a merciless campaign to wipe out our history, defame our heroes, erase our values, and indoctrinate our children. So here Trump goes straight for the conquer and divide strategy. You know, he really rains down on this idea of Antifa and the left and all of this. His whole means of power is to continually divide and conquer. And the way he's doing this right now in the speech is he's getting people to sympathize with this great American legacy, this great American, you know, mythology of our ancestors and all of their struggles and all of their suffering is at risk of having been in vain because the left wants to come in and wipe away the whole identity of the United States and these ancestors and these fables and this mythology. Angry mobs are trying to tear down statues of our founders, 
to face our most sacred memorials and unleash a wave of violent crime in our cities. Many of these people have no idea why they're doing this, but some know exactly what they are doing. Okay, so here's where Trump works to reinforce this fictitious reality that Trumpism is founded upon. He has to create enemies. He has to create enemies to reinforce an us versus them mentality, to continually consolidate power. Okay, when you were in a cult, the people on the outside of the cult are the enemy. They're dangerous. You have to stay within the cult. Everything in the outside world is a threat. So what he does here is he labels all of the peaceful protesters protesting for George Floyd and for civil and human rights. He labels them angry mobs. Okay, so protesters in this world are angry mobs. Then he goes to discredit the entire movement um, behind the protests as, as saying that this mob does not know what they're protesting for, largely. So that way, he's creating this idea that mostly these are just riots. This is all just about, you know, anarchistic, nihilistic rioting. And then he dials it in. Now there's also a group within that that is even more dangerous, a group that knows exactly what they're doing. And this is the real enemy. You know, this is Antifa. These are, these are the, the professional revolutionaries. They think the American people are weak and soft and submissive. But no, the American people are strong and proud, and they will not allow our country and all of its values, history, and culture to be taken from them. Okay, this is the most dangerous thing that Trump talks about during the whole rally. Right here, he is inciting violence against American citizens that are against Trump. He's rallying up his cult of believers to take arms to show how tough they are to the soft leftists, to fight them, to hurt them. This is just unfucking believable that the president of the United States gets away with calling for and inciting violence against United States citizens. It's unacceptable. It's reckless. And whether Trump wins or Trump loses, I think the sad reality is there's going to be a lot of right-wing violence against people in our future. And that's why right now on the left, we have to start coming together and mobilizing and organizing. Because the Trumpers and Trump aren't going to go softly. They want to fight. So there's two options. Either we fight or we find a way to understand how they've been brainwashed and start working to reach the fanatics. Because otherwise, things are going to get really fucking shitty. And that's not good for anyone. So it's extremely important that we start understanding how Trump operates. We understand the psychology of his followers. We understand this reality, this fictitious narrative he's created. It's the reason why facts don't matter to them because they see, a, they operate in a different reality. So we have to learn to connect with them by understanding what their reality is so that way we can start leading them out because no one wants a civil war. And this is something that I really want to explore with this podcast series. You know, we face this rise of neo-nationalism and fascism and 
all of these terrible right-wing movements right now. Because, let's face it, the left, we on the left, have failed to create a better world or offer a true vision of what is possible over the past 40 years for the most part. And we've allowed the neoliberalists and the capitalists and the far right to just continually take over this country and the world. And so we need to start reaching the people, the masses, with an idea of what is possible, the type of world that we can create. And if we don't have solutions or visions for the future, keep in mind, Bernie Sanders, a lot of Trump voters would have voted for him because he had a vision. And if we on the left cannot create a vision and enroll the rest of America in it, the right, the Nazis, the fascists, the Trumpers, all of them will be standing there with all of the explanations that Americans are looking for as to why the world has gone to shit. And so the future of left revolution, I believe, is going to start with psychology and understanding those that have been misinformed and brainwashed by the most powerful entity to have ever existed, the American spectacle. And that is something that we're really going to dive into on this podcast series, the society of the spectacle. Because the truth is, is that no left-wing revolution will be successful as long as the media is there programming people to stand against their best interests. We need to understand why the people on the right and the Trumpers and the nationalists, why they believe what they believe. And we need to start taking over and sabotaging and redirecting and manipulating the spectacle like Donald Trump does so we can start getting our narratives and our dialogues and our visions out there. And now the next thing that he goes into the speech is this idea of cancel culture. Once again, the media has seized upon this idea of cancel culture being this epidemic of people on the left wanting to One censor of their political and stand free speech. Is cancel culture driving people from their jobs, shaming dissenters, and demanding total submission from anyone who disagrees? And it is completely alien to our culture and to our values. And it has absolutely no place in the United States of America. Okay, so right here, they take something that is, that is good. People that have racist, shitty, um, terrible things that, that they say or that they stand for getting deplatformed. That's a good thing. Okay, there's nothing totalitarian or anything about it. In fact, if you're a proponent of democracy, that is direct democracy. That is people coming together and standing against something. However, Trump twists it. He flips it as and the right as well flips it into this idea of this, you know, this totalitarianism, you know, this this Soviet style of repression. Okay, so then they sell it to the mainstream public because the cameras just roll. The news cameras roll. And so the more and more they say shit twisted and the media broadcasts it, that becomes the reality. That becomes the narrative and the dialogue. Okay? And this is one of the biggest problems that I have with like Joe Rogan, for example. He's always, always, always talking about political correctness and political correctness and political correctness and all that is doing is reinforcing this fiction 
this complete fabrication that there is a bunch of people out there in America that want to destroy freedom. They want to get rid of your, you know, your amendment rights of, of free speech. And it's just simply not true. But the more and more that shit gets broadcast and put out there, the more and more it creates this fictitious polarization. And it's dangerous. This attack on our liberty, our magnificent liberty, Nobody must is attacking be stopped, liberty. And it will be stopped very quickly. Once again, a direct threat at American citizens. We will expose this dangerous movement, protect our nation's children, end this radical assault, and preserve our beloved American way of life. Okay, so the right are hypocrites. But we can't reach them if we just always call them hypocrites. We know that it's well established. But here, here's one thing that just, just stands out. You know, this whole idea of free speech in America and the Constitution and this and that. However, when citizens that aren't conservative stand up for their rights or exercise those rights through protest or through struggle, it's inherently anti-American. It's a threat to liberty. It's a threat to democracy. When, when white protesters show up with a bunch of guns at the state capitol trying to intimidate and scare people, that's patriotism. That is white men standing up for the good and the free. It's fucking bullshit. But when a bunch of college kids unarmed show up to protest injustice, they're fucking terrorists. You have to understand the complete power that the spectacle has, that the media has. And how Donald Trump and the right know how to play the game. They get it. And we on the left have to learn to start playing that game better. How to start twisting the media. How to start getting things in our favor. You know, I believe AOC is, is amazing. Because what, what she's doing right now, aside from her politics, uh, she is getting the media to focus on her. Because she's getting the idea of democratic socialism out there to the masses, getting them comfortable to hear it, presenting those ideas. And she's creating conflict with Nancy Pelosi and the establishment, you know, right-wing Democrats. And that's amazing because we need to turn the spectacle on itself. We need to create essentially our own spectacles by creating conflict, newsworthy conflict that tricks the media into focusing on on us, on our beliefs, on our movements, and what we are doing. The right are masters of this. The reason why Donald Trump won the presidency was because early on, during his campaign rallies, he said so much racist shit that it created conflict that was newsworthy. And he got all of the news channels to focus on him and broadcast every single rally of his because it got viewers because it made so much money and in doing so they created a monster that they could not control and ended up winning the election and bringing the country to the point that it is in now so we need to stay in the streets we need to keep fighting we need to keep the media focused on us because the truth is is that the media is simply a propaganda machine and the American media is the most powerful propaganda machine that has ever existed in human history. It is so powerful that it has influenced the rest of the world into adopting Western materialistic lifestyles. Now watch how Trump 
uses his platform to create this fictitious enemy. In our schools, our newsrooms, even our corporate boardrooms, there is a new far-left fascism that demands absolute allegiance. If you do not speak its language, perform its rituals, recite its mantras, and follow its commandments, then you will be censored, banished, blacklisted, persecuted, and punished. <laughs> Not going to happen to us. Okay. To those of us listening to this podcast, that is hilarious. It's awesome. It makes the left sound so fucking cool that if I wasn't part of it, I would want to be part of it. First off, there's a lot to unpack there. Number one, I highly doubt there are people that have far left political views in boardrooms of corporations that kind of goes against what we stand for. Secondly, the idea that we are some secret society with a language and and rituals and mantras it's it's insane it's it's hilarious however to the americans that are under his spell it's not funny it's scary and they believe it and they buy into it and they are scared of us they are scared of progressive ideas and values and it's really really sad So the only thing we can do is start casting some spells in our rituals to get them. (laughs) I'm just kidding. So one other thing I want to clear up real fast is he refers to left-wing fascism. That is oxymoronic. Left-wing ideologies cannot be fascistic because fascism is a right-wing ideology. So you cannot have left-wing fascism, nor can you have right-wing, you know, socialism or communism. They are on different sides of the political spectrum and they're diametrically opposed. You can, however, have totalitarianism on both sides of the spectrum. So what did you mean to say, Donnie? Totalitarianism. Huh? Totalitarianism. Can you repeat that? Totalitarianism. 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 That's right. Totalitarianism. This isn't a one-time thing for Trump. You can find multiple videos of him struggling with this word. However, I will admit, in doing this podcast, I have found out how challenging it is to continually pronunciate and say words correctly. Uh, so bear with me. This is my first podcast, and I'll cut Trump just a little bit of slack in that area. It's hard. And anybody out there that has a podcast, I salute you because I hadn't realized how much work and effort went into everything. Um, So, yeah. So we're going to cut part one right here of this two-part series where we deconstruct his 4th of the July speech. There is a lot more crazy stuff to come up. You definitely do not want to miss the second part of this episode. As he continually keeps saying crazier and crazier shit, we're going to start touching base on more and more deep societal issues and ideas and things that are going on that this podcast will work to address over the course of the series. So 
I just want to address the show. The format of each episode may end up being a little different. And I think that's a good thing for now because I envision a looseness in the format where this was me uh, analyzing and criticizing a, a piece of a piece of existing media. I, the very first episode that I originally intended to do is a thesis based on a thesis of mine um, with historical supported uh, facts. So I essentially built an argument. Um, that one dives into social Darwinism, Peter Kropotkin, Ayn Rand, uh, and even a modern book uh, that I highly recommend. I'd like to do more episodes like this, where it's based on my opinion, response, and analysis, as well as longer ones that delve into specific ideas and explore theory as well as books. I envision doing episodes featuring activists and experts with cool ideas or who are doing righteous work, um, whether it be interviewing or profiling them, or even have them just dropping knowledge about politics, philosophy, psychology, and those things. Maybe you happen to be one of those people. Hit me up on Instagram. Let me know. Maybe you have a degree in philosophy or psychology or linguistics or something really interesting, fascinating. Just hit me up and let me know. I'd really love to bring very interesting, fascinating, and thought-provoking conversations and interviews to this show. Most importantly, this series is for all of you and the community that we're building. So please hit me up on Instagram. Let me know how I'm doing. Let me know what you liked, what you didn't like. I'm open to feedback. Maybe you've got some big ideas or some credentials and you just want to connect. Please do so. Maybe you have a podcast. And I can't thank you enough for listening to the entire podcast. Part two is going to drop very soon. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, I just want to thank you so much for your support. It really keeps me motivated. The more support I get, the more committed I am to this. So shout out to the new candies whose song Excess you heard in the intro segment from their album Bleeding Magenta. Our outro song is Departure by the Crystal Stilts from their album Departure. And please don't forget, comrades, to include this podcast in your radical left rituals. Totalitarianism. 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 Totalitarianism.